independent, expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, Sarah Kramer. Sarah Kramer is a rare bird. Her principal is trumpet, and her mastery of that instrument has earned her a career in which she has rubbed elbows and shared stages with legends like Bo Diddley, Leonard Cohen, and Levon Helm. She got her start in New Jersey, studied music in college in New York City, and spent some time in Taos, New Mexico. But she soon found that she suffered from a sort of musical diaspora. Through all of her travels, the music and culture of New Orleans felt the most like home, so she relocated to the Crescent City and immersed herself in the local scene. For eight years, she played every style she could manage, blues, jazz, Latin, brass band, reggae, klezmer, alternative rock, as well as fronting her own band, The Sarah Kramer Project. She was living the dream and making a living in music, but the seeker in her implored her to push herself out of her comfort zone, so she relocated to Los Angeles and began to focus on her own unique style of songwriting and composition. Her 2013 solo release, Home, shows off her considerable talent as a musical force who defies any box in which you might try to put her. Kramer's music is not quite folk, not quite indie, and far too adventurous to lump her in with typical songwriter conventions. Home starts in familiar territory, with tremolo guitars, vocals, and other standard-issue tools of the trade. And just when the listener thinks they've got Kramer pegged, the horns sneak in, weaving in and out of the arrangements and adding fresh timbres that owe a debt more to impressionist painters than to her beloved New Orleans rhythms. Kramer is currently working on a new record, and given her resume and the caliber of players that pick up the phone when she calls, it won't be anything but great. Welcome to Independence Day, Sarah Kramer. Hey, Sarah! Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming out on a rainy day. It's raining in Los Angeles. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's awesome. Thank it, you for it, having me. It's, uh, yeah. It's, well, let's talk about music. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so excited to hear the music that you're going to play today because you've got such an amazing experience in music. Like you've been all over the place. Um, you've worked as a side artist. You've got your own music that you do. Uh, and there's so much juicy stuff to talk about. But let's get this a little bit of your background first. Uh, tell me where, like, where, where did you come up? Where did you start this whole experience? You know, like Steve Martin, I was born a poor black child <laughs> from the jerk. Where, where were you? Where, where do you come from? Um, well, first I was in the womb, <clears throat> or even before then, I was everywhere. Uh, then I was in the womb. I would say um, <laughs> going way back. <laughs> your older yeah. material. Um, well, my mother would hum or you know sing or kind of just to herself she wasn't uh a professional um wasn't a professional so- <laughs> hummer is that what you're saying <laughs> yeah so i think maybe just you know in the womb and beyond i i heard she has good pitch and you know good spirit and then um my father had played as a child so and played drums so he would always sort of tap his legs and both of them really as loved drummers me, do as drummers do and so <clears throat> i would say that uh both my parents loved music um even though they were not musicians and so it was always encouraged and sort of 
present and my dad had a great record selection that was going to be my next question is was there collection was there like a a really good collection around it was records back then right like actual vinyl records yeah he he totally had vinyl records and a great stereo but it wasn't like all the time he would be playing music it always seemed like it was a special thing to be busting out a record kind of a thing um and so certainly, like random times, you know, holidays or whatever, records would come out. But also, once I was older and I discovered, you know, for myself, like in high school or whatever, I was getting, I really loved this um, Lead Belly record he had. And then I was in, as a horn player, I was into jazz. And he had, <clears throat> you know, different, he had a different, he had like Baba Alatunji, Miles Davis, you know, different stuff that was really great. But going back to the beginning, so I'd maybe credit just my folks. Then growing up, my brother was a drummer, so he had a big influence. My older brother was a drummer, so he had an influence on me just because he was into music. And then in elementary school, before they started cutting arts out of the programs, I had a great um, elementary school chorus teacher and an orchestra teacher. So... I was just so super lucky there. So and where was this geographically? <clears throat> oh, so I was born in Germany, but I grew up in New Jersey, West Orange, New Jersey. Okay. And the chorus teacher, Deirdre Tarditi, what was her name back then. She's since married, and now she's Deirdre Donovan. Um, and then Mr. Tarantino was the orchestra teacher. And so I did that, you know, from elementary school, and I just always loved music and always kept going then through junior high and high school yeah so tell tell me this uh you know every kid at some point starts listening to music that pisses off their parents or is it if nothing else is different from what their parents liked like if you seems like your parents had a really you know if you've got what did you say was was it uh lead belly what did you say before yeah lead belly that was my favorite record but it wasn't necessarily my dad's favorite favorite record but it was in he it was one of his records so he so right. he liked it yeah. right, right okay so but that's, if someone has lead belly <laughs> he they, loved they, 50s music right. most of all i'd say i guess what i'm getting at is that they he knows music yes if he yes. has if he had lead belly or your mother had lead belly right so it, what what was the first artist that you brought home like what record did you bring home or cassette or whatever your parents were like ah i don't want to hear that was or was there at a point that that even happened some parents are very different say, about that i would say my parents like while I always longed to have parents or a parent that was a musician that I was like we you know yeah yeah guided or mentored by or whatever or um my parents were very cool to come from I mean it makes sense I'm a musician in the sense that there was never anything that I listened to like the first music I was really into was reggae I'd say um apart from but, your parents you mean or did they have uh, reggae I mean, records just too? when I, no, I don't think no. They didn't have reggae okay. reggae records. They did not have rec- reggae records. <clears throat> but um, but I'd say my mom really liked like uh, musicals, Broadway, you know, that kind of music. Um, and growing up, you know, just outside of Manhattan, you know, we could even be exposed right. to you know whatever. I remember especially liking Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Right. Yeah, um, but. Uh, what was I saying about the... Well, I was just trying to uh, figure out, like, if there was ever anything that you brought oh, the home music. that your oh, parents right. were like, I turn that turn that racket off, Sarah! Right, no, and, and oddly, I also have to credit them that 
my brother being a drummer didn't bother them. Me being a trumpet player, I can only imagine those early sounds, you know, but it was always just supportive. And then me choosing to pursue music and be a musician, there was never a, well, maybe you should also do this or pay attention. It was always just like, they always just supported and supported me as my own person to uh, be and do whatever I want and whatever success or failure in between was what might, you know, happen. But it was just, there was never a, don't listen to this or don't hmm. play that. So here's to Mr. and Mrs. Kramer, because that's, that's, a, that's a gift. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the funny thing is, is, so many musicians that are like uber ridiculously successful come from troubled families. It's like they had to prove themselves. And the, the, the uh, Eric Clapton's of the world, the John Lennon's of the world, the, you know, the, I mean, not to say that you or I or anyone else isn't successful at doing this, but like it seems like the people, even like Barack Obama, for example, you know, had a strange relationship with his father or, or, or almost no relationship with his father. So people who have that kind of broken system at home or, ha- or have something to rebel against, then it somehow fuels that fire, you know, and gives them more. But I, I think it can work the other way, too, you know, when parents are super supportive. I mean, I, like I said, here's to Mr. and Mrs. Kramer. That, that's <laughs> fantastic that you had that. You know, it's, it's an opportunity. It's a blessing to, to not have to fight that battle initially, you know, in your... In, in your in the, the closest part of your realm, the inner part of the solar system, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I think they recognize that I I need music. One time yeah. my father said to me, in response to, once I started writing songs, I think it was, they gave me like a used acoustic guitar for my 16th birthday. I hadn't even asked for it or expressed wanting one. I was just into folk music. Maybe they recognized I liked songwriters. Um, but I was already playing trumpet, but I also loved to sing and sang. Um, and once I started writing songs, and I did a little piano too, um, one time my father said something like, you know, you need to do it. Like he just recognized, it, it gets things yeah. out or sorts you out. Like basically I wouldn't be healthy if I wasn't doing right. it. The phrase I've used in my own life is I can't not do it. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's, it's like a exactly. compulsion. Or, exactly. or, or, you know, I don't want to say obsession because that makes it sound like some kind of something people would write a movie about, but like, it's a compulsion. It's something, it's part of our DNA. It's part of what mm. gets us up in the morning, part of what keeps us going on rainy days. Just who we are. Parts of, yeah, exactly. Parts of what gets, gets us into a van to drive across the country for low pay, <laughs> you know, in very little glory. So anyway, I'm talking with Sarah Kramer, Los Angeles-based uh, singer-songwriter and also trumpeter, trumpetist. What would you say? Trumpet player. Trumpet player. And I also play flugelhorn. Badass trumpet player, I might add. <laughs> very, very good. You should pick up her new record, newest record. It's called Home. She's also working on a brand new record, which we'll make sure we let you know about when it comes out. But today we're going to be playing some tracks from home. She's going to be playing some live tracks with a couple great musicians, Danny Magoo and Stephen Hodges here in just a few minutes. But first, let's hear something from home. Uh, this came out not too terribly long ago, right? Just uh, Was it just last year, I think, or so? Yeah, time flies here it in does. sunny California. It's hard to tell, but it's been... 
probably a couple years now. It's okay. been out. Well, it sounds fresh to me. I mean, it just came to me. And by the way, I'd like it. To... It hasn't gone very far. <laughs> so it is new still. Well, it still feels new to me, let's actually. Let's see if we can do something it about that. It took so long to make. And I also want to say thank you to Don Heffington, uh, our common friend. He's the one that actually introduced us. And Don, we had a great, I had a great time talking with him on here. And thank you for bringing Sarah to my attention. So uh, this is the artist Sarah Kramer. You can learn about her at sarahkramer.com. This is the song At the Heart from her record Home on Independence Day. Armstrong, you are listening to Independence Day. We come to you every other Wednesday night. Please feel free to listen to us at indepday.com. That's I N D E P 
D-A-Y.com, also indepday.com slash iTunes. We're on there as well. They're all free, at least for the time being. Well, I'm building my media empire, one free <laughs> podcast at a time. Uh, this week's guest, Sarah Kramer. Sarah with an H, so happy to have you. Say hello, Sarah. Hello. So great to have you. You're so talented. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, when Don gave me, uh, he gave me your CD when he came in to do his taping, or maybe he dropped it off at another time. I think he stuck it through my mail slot. But oh. I put it on, you know, I, when anybody who works in the business gets a million CDs. Yeah. You know? And right away, it, it, the record struck me as very interesting coming from someone, because he kind of pitched you as a trumpet player who plays with a lot of people. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute, like your work as a side, I was going to say side man, but you're a side woman, side person. Um, but you're also very astute as a songwriter and as uh, an artist, because it seems like sometimes, for me, it seems like there's a big disconnect from people who do a lot of side work. They tend to not do a lot of their own music. Um, or if they do, it's kind of a one-off type of little thing just to do it. But you're f- like fully formed in both regards. Was this always the case for you? You said you were growing up, you kind of did both at the same time? Yeah, I'd say I've always had both going on, and they're different things. Like, for sure, to me, music is expression, and so there are things to express using words, and there are things to express using sounds. And I feel like... I definitely enjoy expressing myself, not just with words and my voice, but I definitely feel like maybe even more so I can say more or my voice is even more my trumpet. Um, but, you think your trumpet is your primary form of expression? Uh, is they're that what you're kind saying? Of pretty, they're kind of pretty the same, but I mean, as far as like, I think of it as like, if, if I'm going to, travel you know close my eyes and just play like the trumpet is home that's my voice and i can express and sound i feel like music is a language right and it's beyond words and so there's more expression can happen sounds and trumpet is my instrument okay but um songs also it's kind of all there you know there's the sound and the melody and the groove and the vibe and the feel and the words and the story or whatever it is in the songs too. And my songs tend to be my personal experiences or feelings or whatever it is I'm expressing or observing or my perspective, whatever. Um, So it's funny. People do know, some people know me as a songwriter, singer songwriter, and some people know me as a horn player. I think, um, you know, when I was when I started out and I was playing gigs, I was maybe seventeen, eighteen, and uh, a friend, Paul McMahon, who lives in Woodstock, I met. Um, I say this with care. He's an old hippie um, poet. You know, coming from a t- artist, great singer, songwriter himself. Anyway, there was this place, Tinker Street Cafe in Woodstock. They had an open mic there. It was a bar, and obviously I was underaged. And somehow I got in once, and it was just like me, this young person, and then all these like old school characters. And I went once, and then I, you know, it just, it was so cool for me, and everybody was so warm and welcoming that I kept going back. And somehow I kind of like give Paul the credit, but somehow I was always allowed to keep doing it. And then from there I would book duo gigs, solo gigs, and so I was always doing the songwriter thing, and the trumpet at that point was just 
from the orchestra in school, I would have I would play in this elementary school, junior high, high school, like whether it be uh, orchestra, jazz band, marching band, what have you. Then in high school, I started playing like in a rock band or whatever, more as a singer, but then also horn. And then I went to Bard and um, Wadada Leo Smith was my teacher there. And I was playing more jazz and improvising and getting into that. And uh, it was all around the time of the songwriter thing. Anyway, like in New Orleans, I had my own band and did my songs, but then I was just playing horn. It's a horn town with a slew of other, all different styles, all different bands. It was so welcoming and accessible. But out here in Los Angeles, it's weird for live gigs here. It's really hard. And I kind of haven't done much of my own thing and mostly people know me as a horn player yeah and uh because that's more of what i do here but it's i've been doing both all along always my whole life now let's let's focus first on like your singer songwriter type stuff because i think maybe people here in los angeles who know you around town like you said they know you as a horn player and you've got some pretty serious credits as a horn player, both here and in New Orleans. I mean, uh, the name Leonard Cohen will come up at some point. The name Bo mm-hmm. Diddley will come up at some point, right? But let's kind of set that aside. It's our little teaser to talk about that in a few <laughs> minutes. But first, like your singer-songwriter stuff. When Don gave me the disc and I was listening to it, you know, having, you know, it's a singer-songwriter style disc. It's like, and I'm thinking, okay, here's another, another female singer-songwriter, which isn't to denigrate any of those things because it's the same for males. But it's like, okay, there's a lot of them out there. And some of them are great. So I'm listening. Um, and I started noticing a lot of horn arrangements because I didn't really know at that point that the horn was a thing that you did. I just knew that you were a singer-songwriter. You probably played guitar or keyboards or whatever, and these are your songs. And they're great. They're very interesting, very well-recorded, well-produced. Um, but then I, kept, I really, you know, I having a background in music, I'm listening, and I'm like, well, those horn arrangements aren't just some, they didn't just, the producer didn't sit there and go, oh, I think there should be a trumpet on this song and maybe a trombone. And they went and called somebody and gave them 50 bucks and they played a thing, they played a part, right? <laughs> I could tell that this was, A, an accomplished player, but B, something that was really integral to that music, and it was uh, a part of what it was. Like It seemed like it was imagined from the beginning. They didn't just throw trumpet on it. It was right. part of that, and I, that, that's when I figured out, okay, wait a minute. This is a legit trumpet player, and that's what I struck me as being so unique about you is that you're doing the singer-songwriter thing, but because this horn thing is like a whole other pillar in your life, you just kind of blurred it all together. And these great, here's these like folk songs. Because I think I've got this theory, I'm rambling a little bit, but I've got this theory that like there, there are like ancillary instruments that when mixed in with popular styles of music, when it, it, it gets too much of it, it takes over, right? And horn can kind of be that way in singer-songwriter music. You don't hear it a lot. Or ukulele, which is like the instrument du jour these days. Um, or... Um, too much of the, the ancillary instruments can take over. And you did it so well. I was so impressed. Oh, thank you. And it's, it's wonderful. So was, was that the case? Am I off base? Or did you, was it like built into the, what you were doing? Or it seemed logical to me. Oh, yeah. No, it's just, um, I, I hear things. Um, so like as a horn player, I knew I'm going to be playing horn on this. Um, but out the gate, I start with, okay, I'm going to, track myself so the first album i recorded at um red hill recording with rich mcculley Mm -hmm. and 
um, I tracked my vocal and guitar parts. Was the first album Home? I'm sorry. Yes, okay, so that, yes. well, okay, we're talking about the same album. We're talking. Yes, we are. <laughs> Just making sure because you said the first album. I didn't. Oh wasn't yeah, sure if there the was, only like, some album. Basement at this tapes point, album. yeah. Sorry, at this point, the only album. I only say my first album because okay. I happen to be working on my next. Got it. My only album, Home. Uh, I tracked there, and the way I did it, which worked for me, which was efficient, was that I recorded my parts first because. Uh, long ago, I used to um, play in a band called Brahondo, which was Stephen Hodges on drums, Jeff Termis on bass, and Rick Holmstrom on guitar. And then there would be other players that would come in, Mike Tempos, um, Smokey Hormel, oh, yeah, Smokey. Peter Fahey, different people would kind of come in. I was one of the people that would... It was really that trio, but there was some of us that... But um, anyway, so Brahondo, but then... Those guys the past few years have got the gig um, backing Mavis Staples, so they're on the road. Um, Anyway, but I always loved their creativity and their tone and their sound, and we'd worked well together, but also they play together so much and have done so much that I thought, perfect, I'll have them um, play on it. So to then have them come on, and I am answering the question about how the trumpet comes in, is that then once the band's on, because I'm building in layers at that point, so they could come in in a day or two and track all the tunes because I already had laid it out, um, my own parts. Then I can just listen and listen on my own time and start to hear trumpet parts, and that's where, and then you hear harmonies, and then you go in and layer that way. And so it was really an organic process, but it, and it's just kind of, I guess it just kind of happens, just like a song might happen. The horn arrangements happen, yeah. but I, I really enjoy arranging horns, and um, I've done. You know, one time uh, Greg Sutton had me do horn arrangements on a song called "Window Shopping," and I had so much fun doing that. I, I just yeah. I like horns, and the best music tends to have horns. Oh, I see. Okay, now we're going out there. There's your declarative <laughs> statement. That was a roundabout way to answer your question. But yes, yeah, so I always knew Trumpet would be there, but it wasn't that I, from the start, knew exactly what I'd play. Just I hear yeah. things. The more that's there, there's more... Like the horn is kind of goes on top. Yeah. So even if there's a band, like, give me the tune, and then I'll work out the horns. Because yeah. it's kind of a... You know, or together while... You know, at the same time. I've... I mean, I, I've... I'm being fairly effusive about it, but I've I've never really heard singer-songwriter music where an instrument like a horn arrangement hung so well in with the rest of the stuff. Oh, right. Is Thanks. what I'm getting at. Yeah, because yeah, so, there so was kudos, padding. Yeah, it was all. Yeah, it was kind of all over. It wasn't just one little small yeah. tidbit. I feel like you I can see even, what you're saying. You can even hear like a, a like a it's a, my a voice a big well produced. Over you know, big time produced song. Like the other day, you know, uh, I just drove across the country not too terribly long ago, and you know, so you're cycling through your iPad, and it's a two thousand mile drive. Or your I'm sorry, your, your iPhone or whatever iPod is what I had, and I started digging kind of deep because I I had played a lot of stuff. We'd played a lot of albums, and I pulled out the song "Sunset Grill" by Don Henley, which from his I think his nineteen eighty five Building the Perfect Beast album, which is the big synthesizer, guitar synth, this big production. At the end, this big horn arrangement comes in, like a full horn thing. I'm like, that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> but you know, like where did whose idea was that? Where did it come from? Or like um there's so many songs like that where the, the, there's just a big arrangement. Uh, Rosanna by Toto. 
you know, that big, that big run. There, there's so many, and you would know them better than I do. You're the horn player. I, I can't maybe, play anything. Maybe, I'd maybe into. not. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm talking to Sarah Kramer. We're meandering through random topics, among them her uh, astute career as a horn player, trumpet player, flugelhorn player, but she's also a singer-songwriter. Drop by sarahkramer.com, and that's S-A-R-A-H, Kramer with a K, K-R. A-M-E-R. Uh, really, really good stuff. Pick up her most recent record. It's called Home. You can pick it up on her website and maybe elsewhere, too. I don't know. The internet is a very strange way to buy music, I think. iTunes, Amazon. etc. Yeah. Um, but you've got a band here. So why don't you play a live tune? What's this first one going to be? This is called Streets I Ride. Streets I Ride. Okay, and this is also from Home, correct? Yes, it is. Okay, and she will be accompanied by Danny Magoo and Stephen Hodges on this. So Sarah Kramer on Independence Day. That I ride 
authentically me I ride these streets And I see the things that I see I'm gonna lay all my burdens down By the riverside And hope I can survive In these streets that I ride Streets that I ride That I ride Streets that I ride That is Sarah Kramer on Independence Day Accompanied by Danny Magoo and Stephen Hodges Good stuff, Sarah Thank you I love it Thank you I love so it, much. I love, love. These guys are so great, by the way. They're awesome. It must feel. It must be good to like run in circles of musicians of that caliber, just to be able to call them up and go, "Hey, you know, you guys are you come come play on my little podcast deal." <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, it's definitely a blessing. There's one thing I wish people would have told me, like coming up as a musician. It's that you know that I always say, and you always hear as a kid, you know, it's who you know. That's what's going to get you the things you you know ahead in life, right? And then growing up in like podunk suburban Chicago, like I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anyone who played on albums. I didn't know anybody who was a professional musician who recorded in the studio. My mom sang in church choir and I loved music. But what they don't tell you, and I, come, I say this all the time in Independence Day, I wish they would tell you that like it's the people not just above you who you know, but the people to the sides of you or even the people below you. The kid who was a couple of grades below you might get a gig and they might get you onto a gig at some point. Or the guy you or girl you knew sitting next to you in jazz band might get a gig and then go, hey, Sarah Kramer can play trumpet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they don't tell you that kind of stuff. I wish they, you know, there's so many things I wish I would have heard. Like the winning lottery numbers, <laughs> where to find the pot of gold, <laughs> don't date that girl, that kind of thing. All you need is love. All you need is love. You know, I like how you're going all altruistic on me here. Uh, all right, so you've got a record home. You're working on a brand new record as well. Um, will the new record be similar? Is there something that's artistically, did you at some point say, I want to change in this way? Or is it, is it just a logical evolution? What's the new record going to be like? I would say it's a different, it's, a, it's just an evolution of me. So it's still um, my songs. The first, the first record, I had gone through heartbreak. So a lot of the songs sort of have that theme and it, I was in the process of healing, so to speak, or whatever. Um, Which is and, always great, honestly, <laughs> for songwriting. So if, if anybody, you know, needs a heartbreak record, I highly recommend mine. No, um, but this next album is, uh, is more... Um, stories or more song i feel like uh it's maybe a different type of song but it's still me and my song and from my experience or my perspective and um steven will be on that as well um ross shodek on upright bass um who else so far that's i'm still in the beginning stages yeah, Val, yeah. Val mccallum is gonna add some guitar my friend sung park um put on some tenor sax and some cajon. Uh, and I've yet to do my horn parts on this, but um, <clears throat> I'm really excited about it. And um, so it'll be similar but different. Yeah. 
And when, like, so you're just getting started. So you really, I mean, are you someone that works pretty quickly in the studio? Because you said you kind of build your track. So is this something that you're going to work on through, like, the spring and summer? We'll see it in the fall. Okay. Or, I mean, some everybody, like, there's, like, the Def Leppard thing where it takes, like, six years to make a record or the right. Boston thing. Or, like, there's the John Mellencamp thing. He does a whole record in three weeks. Like, what's your thing? Well, believe me, if I had a huge budget, it would go way faster. Yeah. Uh, the only reason why my current album uh, took a couple years was because of budget. Um, I think I have enough money to do another session now. Okay, right, you right. know, the Hollywood arsonist blew up my car. We'll have to, you know, <laughs> wait. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, which did the Hollywood did arsonist really yes. blow up your car? You've got to tell me about this. Okay, but maybe not on the interview. Oh, well, just, <laughs> Someone blew up your car. Uh, I don't I think know. I've talked. I've it's never crazy. talked to anyone in my well, entire life if someone blew up their car. You got to tell me. I mean, it happened. <laughs> it, it, it did happen. Um, but it's behind me now. Okay. Um, no, that did happen. But um, but this next record, um, I'm really lucky to be working with Michael Rosan, who's an amazing producer and talented musician. Oh, and I failed to mention that he played pedal steel on one of the songs. Mm. He's a great player as well. Um, so... Uh, it's just worked at working out this time around that there's a lot of support from people that I'm working with, so it's more doable for me, and and I can um, move it along. Um, yeah. But I do like to have some kind of slow pace where I can sit with things and listen a while, because like I said, it re I really have to hear things and then mm -hmm. you know when you're working and doing other things and there's only so much time so i would say time frame wise we're at the beginning but it's moving along yeah. so i would say for sure within this year okay um i don't know exactly how long because you're also looking at all right am i making cds and right. artwork and blah blah and do i have a, need a photo or a painting yeah. or something um mixing mastering all the different st different steps but it's it's coming along and i'm excited okay that's the thing we're in a weird place in terms of like independent artists and the, the making of records you know i'm i come from an old school world i i really like to have a physical product i like the tangible aspect of it because me to too. me it's the original multimedia package right because you know i grew up without the internet and I was a liner note junkie. I always wanted to know where was this album recorded? Who is this artist playing with that has played on other artists in other liner notes in my collection? That's how I learned the music business, like like tangibly. Yeah, also you know? I think it's um, something like, for me, everything I do in life is with my own two hands. Yeah. So I always feel like it's like from my hands into your hands, you know, to, yeah. to be able to hold something or... And, and the, the artistic, the visual aspect of it, again, I grew up without the internet. I couldn't just go and look at a million pictures of any artist I wanted to see at any hour of the day or night in my bed or on the toilet or wherever I happen to be, right? Um, so, you know, to see what... Do they have a picture of the band at all on their albums? Right, and or the credits. Who, the who credits. did what or what? Yeah, what's happening here? What's the breakdown? The art that they chose. Why did they choose that art? Does it work with the music or against the music? Is it a black and white photo? Is it a color photo? Are there a lot of photos or none? Are there lyrics? Are there not lyrics? Is it a gatefold? Like all these things. Like we're part of the experience of that album, like an, an immersive experience, you know? Um, and I, I love 
seeing that. And you can get it on a digital file and a little thing on your phone, but it doesn't have the same gravitas to me. It's, it's lacking. Yeah, and certainly it's hard sometimes to even locate the credit. Yeah. I mean, I had one song placed and I didn't even see it listed. So even if somebody heard it and wanted it, it seemed like it was even right. hard to get to me. But even more so, I like to credit people. And I think people should know who's playing the drums on this, yeah. who who did what, who who's what it plan you know who who did what like i like to see if i hear something it's not just the song or the yeah. lead artist that i'm interested in it's the whole overall thing or if it reminds me of something else i like to find the connection because i find in life everything and everyone is connected and right. that's actually one of my favorite things to experience is seeing yeah. how it all connects yeah definitely and hearing that, you know, the drummer that played on this track also played on another track that I loved, or the, the organ player, or, you know, or you play on Leonard Cohen's record, or whatever. Like, how are these things, like you said, they are all interconnected. And since music is vibration, and if you really get down to, like, the physics level, you know, uh, was it Einstein or Sagan, one of those guys, like, everything is vibration. Every single thing right. of matter, all of it's vibration at some level. So music being really just vibrations, like, I think taps into that. And I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's, that's very, very important. And I, there have been a couple grassroots movements to try to include those credits like in the metadata of MP3s, right? Because if you take a picture, your phone automatically records where, you know, or you can set it to where you took it, if, if that's oh, you know, right. um, time of day, where you were, um, you know, other stuff, you know, size of the file, et cetera. There was some, people have tried to do that with music, but it's never really taken hold. It's like that whole thing has been whitewashed. You know, if you like a band uh, came out last couple of years, Bahamas, I think they're from Canada. They had a song. Um, I got all the time in the world. Something like that. Maybe I'm singing the lyric wrong, but it's a great tune. And I was like, well, I started to look up the thing like, well, but I can't see anything about them. I can go to their website and learn about them that way. So I guess in some ways there's way more information than there ever was. But I can't just look at it when the song comes up like I could when there was a CD I'm holding in my hand, right. open it up, flip through. Okay, this was recorded in Manhattan at such and such studio. So I, I really wish that that, was, that would be a thing, but nobody seems to care, <laughs> I don't think, except us. On a flip side, I'll say that um, while it seems nearly impossible to get music onto the radio, I don't know how that works, but uh, I will say that when I listen to the radio, I have... Whenever I hear something new that I really dig, even if I just remember one lyric, like if I'm, I only really have a radio set up in my car, and it's usually if I'm going somewhere and no one wants to, nor should they, text and drive or Google and drive. Um, so if a song that I like come, you know, I'm interested in, I have no idea who the artist is or what the song is or who's playing on it. Um, and I don't have time to sit and wait through however many right. songs for them to announce who it is, then I'll either even pull over or as soon as I get to where I'm going, if I'm close, we'll do a quick Google of any of the lyrics I remember and then can almost immediately find some YouTube video that has the song or some way to find the artist. And then, then suddenly... I'm like on the artist's website and I'm reading their bio and right. finding out all about them and then seeing how they're connected to so-and-so. Right, so it's right, kind right. of like Google become, it's kind of like 
the internet is the is the uh, what do you right. call it the, the liner notes the liner notes exactly it's become, yeah now the liner notes yeah. but that's the problem there, <laughs> but of course it's mostly talking about the artist but it does right. list the players but you have to do all this work right. and and actually be interested in it and some people don't care well you I know suppose. of the feature right and Siri when Apple bought um, that the artist or the the app that did that you can actually press a thing and say hey Siri what song is this. And, oh, it will, and it will yeah. literally My listen for a outdated. second. My phone's outdated. I mean, you need I... a new phone. It will, <laughs> but it, it's and it will it will literally tell you who the artist is. Oh, that's cool. And then I love doing that because then I can go back and I, I do it like with ten songs and I go back and I sometimes buy those because I'm like, hey, I, that was a really, really, really wonderful song. But Siri stopped doing it. No, it does do it. Oh, she still does. She still does. Good you know, for her. If um. <laughs> Like, for example, okay, what radio station or stations do you tend to listen to here in My LA? favorite is 88.5. Mm, that's my favorite as well, KCSN. Yes. Okay, so, and I've learned from a lot, a lot of artists from KCSN. I have too. Uh, just like WFUV in New York is my other favorite. That, and I've yeah, learned a lot of artists from those two radio stations. And I'll, I'll be sitting there listening. And uh, in late at night, I remember uh, the first aid kit. The first time I heard first aid kit, I was driving home from work very, very late at night. And a beautiful, beautiful song came on on the air. On KCSN, and I was like, so right away, like as soon as I was thirty seconds in, I'm I'm hooked. I'm I'm gonna buy this, and so I, you know, Siri, what song is this? And it listens. It has to be a clear signal. It can't be a bunch of static or whatever. You know, roll up the windows, put it by the speaker. She listens. This is Cedar Lane by First Aid Kit, and that's you know, so that's a miracle to me. If I'd yeah. had that when I was a kid. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Unbelievable. Anyway, we're all over the place with this conversation, but that's how it goes. I love this. Yeah. Uh, my artist this week, Sarah Kramer. Uh, you can go to sarahkramer.com to find out about her. She's got a record called Home. She's working on a brand new record. She runs with some pretty heavy musicians, so you should check out her music because she's great, as are the people that play on her records. And what's this next song going to be? This one's called Matter of Time. And tell me just a little bit about this. Um. Well, I suppose in the... I don't want to say struggle, just in the in the living the life of an artist um, and just staying focused and driven and trying to not be discouraged and ch- just keep going, but have been doing it for so long and to still kind of just... Um, uh, feel like somehow things will work out that you can, um, I don't know, reach your potential or have more or build a life that you'd dreamt or whatever manifest it is. Manifest your dreams. Yeah, it manifests your dreams, exactly. So while on one hand, you know, you, you try to say, well, I feel in most ways I already have everything, um, but still there's longing or whatever. So this song is more just... Um, still going and still believing but just you know the it's just that uh journey with no destination maybe or wondering yeah. i don't know to listen but, to the lyrics yourself i don't know <laughs> yeah all right, well we can do that the journey yeah. I, the phrase that i like to use is that the journey is the destination yes people yes. are very focused on the end game but what they yeah. sometimes they need to stop i mean one way you could say it is to stop and smell the roses right but really that whole journey that whole process is the thing. You know, the goal is just what happens when you're done. But then you're done, well, then you need something else, you're on to the next thing. So it, revel in that. Revel in the process. Enjoy your work. Uh-huh. 
I feel like a greeting card philosopher today. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sarah Kramer, accompanied by Danny Magoo and Stephen Hodges. The track is Matter of Time on Independence Day. Where I'm going, there ain't no knowing. It's just a matter of time. Will I still see you? Will you be in the rear view? It's just a matter of time. Will I ever find my place in the wide open space? It's just a matter of time. In this lifetime of labor, can I cash in for a favor? Cause I'm running out of time Armstrong. I'm so very proud to bring you Independence Day every other Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Pacific time, daylight or standard, as the case may be. Uh, it's early in the new year. We're having a great run of artists on the show. So very happy to bring you Sarah Kramer. Say hello, Sarah. Hi. Uh, you are a Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter, but you've been all over. I want to take this part of the interview, talk a little bit about the geography, right? Because you've got New Orleans in there, you've got Los Angeles in there, you've got Taos in there somehow. Taos, New Mexico. You've got uh, and New, York, up, gr- yeah. New York, growing up in New Jersey. So, you know, w- was it specifically music that took you to those places or was there were there other factors as well? Like leaving New Jersey, you're, you're the place of your formative years. Everything I do and everywhere I go is always for music. Okay. I love that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. Uh, so which one was first? You know, so what, what, what specific thing took you out of New Jersey? Like, right? Because you're in New Jersey, you're close to New York. There's a huge scene okay. there, an epicenter of art. Okay. While I'm extremely grateful for my upbringing, I really am grateful for the family I come up in, even though 
maybe I'm somewhat of an oddball. Um, I'm really grateful for the public school system and the people and the neighborhood and just the whole scene of West Orange, New Jersey at the time I was there. But by the time I was in high school, I was so not into New Jersey. And I, can't I wanted imagine. to. <laughs> and so, um, like I said, I, I went to uh, college at Bard. I had a Nisui. Where is Bard? Bard is in Annandale on Hudson, upstate okay. New York in the Catskills. Okay. And I had a Nisui Erdogan Jazz Scholarship um, among a combination of other things to be able to go there. And, um, and well, I guess I could get into the fact that that scholarship, they were supposed to not pull the money, but they did. So it was supposed to be only for jazz musicians, music majors, which I was, uh, but they pooled it. So I needed more money to stay, but they were pooling it illegally, technically. Um, so I wasn't going to take out any more loans, so I left early. So you're fortunate. Yeah. So <laughs> I ended up, um, a friend of mine who's also a wonderful singer-songwriter, whose name is Nels Andrews, who I knew at Bard, had already left, and he was living in Pilar, New Mexico, um, just off the Rio Grande. So that was the first place you went? Was uh, New Mexico? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, okay. uh, so after leaving home, which I couldn't wait to do, um, went to Bard, upstate New York, to college right, there, right, right. and then couldn't finish, split, and I just wanted to get off the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and my friend Nels, by then, was living in Pilar, New Mexico, and I had just enough money to get to somewhere. I could just buy a plane ticket and go to somewhere. But I had nothing and knew no one. I originally thought I wanted to go to maybe Seattle because I heard, oh, there's a music scene there. I just was following music. And he said, well, if you want to get off the East Coast and you want to go to Seattle, um, why don't you just come out here for a bit, get a job, save some money, and then go on. But I ended up liking Pilar and Tao. So I shared a house with him. We were roommates for a while. And then eventually I got my own place and I was building adobe houses and whatever, playing coffee shops and whatever little places exist in Taos. And uh, and then eventually I felt like um, I need to go where the musicians are. So I went and moved to New Orleans and uh, I was here there. Here we somewhere now. Yeah, so I was there in New Orleans for about eight or nine years. And it really was an incredible experience. And of all places I've been, I think that feels the most like home in a way. Okay. Um, but anyway, after New Orleans, I had the idea I was just going to head to Japan. I just wanted to show up with my horn and, and a bag. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I had this old junky car and... In Japan? No, here in, in New Orleans. <laughs> okay. And so I was just going to drive out here. I had a couple friends out here. And then I was going to. here you s- mean LA? LA, yes. Okay. And then I was going to sell the car to buy the ticket to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. But I found out that you can, if you want to stay longer than three months in Japan, you have to have a job and you have to have the job lined up from here first. Mm-hmm. And I never had any kind of job that you could set up ahead of time in another country. You can't, I just would show up. That's what I've always done. I've just shown up. So um, then I realized, well, you know, I'm having a hard time here where I speak English and know some people. 
and I can't go to Japan anyway. So I ended up kind of just getting stuck here. And um, it's most of the time been really, really hard here. But at the same time, there are several um, communities, you know, it just it's become home. And now I just love the sunshine and all that. Um, that car ended up getting booted, towed, and auctioned off. Um, you have bad luck with cars. <laughs> yeah, because I, I never uh, had lived in a place with any restricted parking ever. So, you know, first you come and you don't even realize you you can't park. So you get one ticket and then right. you put money in a meter and it runs up and then you get another ticket. But you don't have a job yet, so you can't pay them and they double and triple. And then, you know, maybe there's like five so- signs on a pole and you're trying to say, okay, I think I can park here, but you don't even know what it all means. If anyone if it's new as a, to you, as a short aside, <laughs> if anyone has never seen yeah. the signs, uh, parking signs on the west side of Los Angeles, like in the, and it's gotten especially bad around the Troubadour. I mean, you would have to have a lawyer to <laughs> delineate what exactly those five <laughs> signs, which are all contradictory to one another. At least it seems that way. Like I, I always wonder, like the guy who's putting up those signs. <laughs> Like, does he know how absurd all those signs are? It's like it's it's because it's like six feet or five feet of just signs on the pole itself. Yeah, it's absurd. It's crazy. So anyway, those tickets like doubled and tripled, and then at at some point I got a boot, and then I was told, you know, if you want to get the boot off, you have to come up with half the money. So like I had some of it, and then I like borrowed some of it to have half. But then they were they said, well. You can pay half if you have California plates, but you have Louisiana plates, so you have to come up with all the money. And there was no way I could, so I said, just keep the car. I mean, the car wasn't even worth the amount that the tickets were, so it was kind of like, that was it. They got the car, and I walked away. But anyway... Where were we again? Well, we were just talking about geography and like so. Oh, the geography. We so I've s- been here, and then I yeah. yeah, and then I there was a brief time. I then moved back east to New York. I was living in Brooklyn, and I was playing in this awesome Cuban band called Grupo Iraq, and we played at a club every Tuesday. It was Sting had a club called Socialista. I don't think it's open any longer, but we played there every Tuesday. And um, I love, love, love Cuban music. So Cuban folk music. Yeah. So. That was really fun, um, but I missed the sunshine. I was while it was charming to be back in the snow and all yeah, of that. Yeah. I realized charming. <laughs> I know why I left the East Coast, you know. So yeah. I ended up coming back. I think it built the snow. I mean, like yeah. adverse weather. I think it uh, it builds character. I think it's good to come from a place like that because I think it makes you a little stronger internally. You know, I always joke. I mean, I've got a friend um, Mason who's been on the show. He used to book at Tex in uh in uh echo park silver lake area and uh he's really tough dude like the guy has neck tattoos but we're friends because he's from chicago i'm from chicago and we always used to joke like los angelinos are soft like they don't you know i'm some some of them are hard i guess but they it's a different like they don't it gets to be i I was we just came back from driving across the country like i said and i'm seeing a dude it's like 60 degrees and he's got a scarf on like dude you're an embarrassment it's not that cold (laughs) pull it together man Anyway, we actually will be know. skipped. I get cold too. Well, I do now. My blood is thin, but that's on purpose. That's a different thing. I know what it's like to, to sh- scrape ice off my windshield. <laughs> I just did it with a Ralph's card. A Ralph's, uh, like, what do they call those? Um, the frequent shopper card. I don't know. Ralph's oh. custom. I don't know what they even call it, but I didn't have an ice scraper. We were in Amarillo, 
and there was frost on the window. So, I, but I know the trick: you get out a credit card and zip, zip, zip on your way, right? <laughs> anyway, well, we skipped over the the part that I actually wanted to get to, or it was it was in the middle of that, which is oh, New Orleans. Sorry. You spent a long no, it's okay. You spent mm. a long time there, but first, I want to get to another song first. So let's let's tease this uh, this this um, New Orleans part of your career. Okay. When play a song first, though. What's the next tune going to be? This is called The Iris of Hollywood, which ah. is the name of my apartment building. Okay, which ties into the fact that you're the Los Angeles part, which is kind of where you wound up and where you are. Never made it to Japan. That's right. Okay, well, Sarah Kramer is my guest. SarahKramer.com, also indepthday.com. You can also follow her on Twitter, SarahKramer underscore com, which is kind of like a, like a Jedi mind trick kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, uh, Sarah Kramer, this is the track Iris of Hollywood on Independence Day. It's the iris 
Iris, Iris of Hollywood. Iris, Iris of Hollywood. Welcome to Independence Day. That's Sarah Kramer, accompanied by Danny Magoo, Stephen Hodges, great musicians, all. So happy to meet you. So happy to have you on the show. Uh, great tunes. Thank Good you so stuff. much. So much fun. It's like new stuff. There's like preview. People are yes. getting a preview of the new record, which is a really cool thing. <laughs> I know. It's it's a weird time to be in music. Like now, people used to be really cagey about not playing stuff in advance, but now I, I don't know. think it even matters. I, They're going to hear it. As soon as you do it, some guy's going to be sitting in your bedroom window recording it and just get it out there. I know. I feel like it. it's always more fun to be doing things that are current, uh, or at least for me. So... um. You know, I'm so excited about the new, what's new, that I'm wanting to get it out there. And so why wait? I'm here now because then by then I'll be somewhere else. So I kind of like the idea of just doing it while it's here. That process is funny because I've always, every time I've done a record, I've gotten new songs written and ready to go. Because the record process, even if, you know, I do it like you do. I kind of add as I go, as I can afford to. Uh, I've got new songs that I can't if I if I always tried to include those on the current record, then no record would ever come out because I've always got new stuff ready to go. But it's like you've got to stop it at one point and like okay, that's the record, that one's going to be. And but I, I just went like at the real record release show, I end up playing the record and then a bunch of new songs that I've written since the record process mm-hmm. started that I didn't have time to get on the record. Anyway, uh, I want to talk about New Orleans because there's such a rich musical tradition there, and you spend a pretty good amount of time there. Um, were you now timeline wise? Were you there before or after Katrina? Because it's a very specific thing for people in New Orleans. I lived there before Katrina, okay. but I was back visiting during Katrina. Okay, and I was stuck for days wow. after Katrina. So wow. I um, let's see, was it t- two thousand five? Katrina happened, I think. Anyway, I came out here in two thousand three, but I was I went back. For a visit, as I was heading there, um, the airport here, it was a Category 5 aimed at Alabama or somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I just so you carried on because I've lived coming. through hurricanes. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I there was one, Hurricane Georges, I evacuated, but... I didn't at the time, you know. I didn't even need to. So I, I always knew if it was, a, you know, a huge hurricane, you know, Category 5, I'd evacuate, but... Um, so at the time it was aimed at Alabama and so I went and then I went into the city and as I'm going into the city, you can see all the cars exiting the city. And then it ended up that it was category five aimed like the eye of the storm or whatever aimed right right at New Orleans. Um, but by then I was in the city and then you couldn't get out. There were no trains, no buses. I had scheduled a rental car, but they closed, packed up shop and fled so i couldn't access that so where did and, you write it out then i mean it wasn't my goal to talk specifically about right. where you wrote out katrina but since we right. stumbled across okay. this like i don't think i know anyone i have some friends who were in baton rouge at the time oh. but most of my musician friends were elsewhere like i don't know anybody who like wrote it out where were you like did you chain yourself had, to a tree did you No, i had i had the idea that 
it may come to the point where I might just have to strap my horn to my leg and swim. But um, I first was staying with a friend who lived in my old neighborhood, Bayou St. John, on Esplanade Avenue, and um, then I had a reservation at a hotel. It was the Marriott um, in the CBD, the Central Business District, right outside of the French Quarter. French Along- Quarter, as people who don't know New Orleans, was actually um, was largely spared because it's higher ground. It's the oldest part of the to- of the city, right? French Quarter. Um, it, it's the, higher-ish. It's higher. Well, it's higher-ish. Well, the problem was that um, if the hurricane had done what the fear of happening was, would be that because of the river and just everything, it would have all been underwater. It's like a fishbowl. Um, but the problem wasn't the storm or the river. The problem was the faulty levees, right. and they were in a different part of town. Um so that's where all the flooding happened, and that was uh, not cool. Um, <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really not. Um, but I so I was staying at a hotel in the CBD, the Central Business District, and there really, when the storm was happening, you know, you could see a tree blowing around and some rain and stuff. And you know, I prepared. I had some canned goods and peanut butter or whatever and I filled the bathtub with water knowing that the plumbing would go and all of this and they were starting to try to get people to all go to the Superdome and I just thought you know I am not going there why would I go there I have a a room here with like a bathtub and you know so um the manager of the hotel was really great I think his first name was Rodney I don't remember his last name but um he really was like a hero. And so he somehow got a generator so you could once in a while charge your phone. And he would check with the sister hotel of, wow. of that one to bring some food. And people would line up. But I mean, it was crazy. I remember one pregnant woman had like one flip flop on, one flip flop off. And she was like trying to get a piece of bread or something. And somebody was upset. And I think they even like, kicked her in the stomach or oh something. I mean, so then they got kicked out of the hotel. It was just craziness. Um, and then you'd wander around. Then the National Guard came to town and you'd think you'd get some answers or direction or some right. help out of there. Um, and this was like, again, days after. Um, but no, they would basically, what I witnessed was the National Guard sitting in a bar that was closed and locked with a generator that they were watching TV and drinking hmm. cold beers and wouldn't even come to the door to help. They were just, you know, having a good old time. I wandered to a bar and the bartender had explained how somebody came in with a knife wound and he stitched them up with fish- fishing line the night before. There was a lot uh, going on, but eventually, um, when there's a national disaster, if you are a hospital employee or emergency type person, or if you or a hotel with, um, what do you, clients or whatever, guests. Yes. You're not allowed to leave or close. So anyone that was working at the hotel technically wouldn't have been allowed to leave. But the manager at eventually said, if you are an employee that has a car and wants to leave, you can go if you take some of the guests with you. So that's how I got out of there. Was I, I rode with some employees. Wow. 
to Texas. Okay. Well, I'm glad you made it out. I mean, I this is I I didn't this stumbled across this just in happenstance. I just wanted to know if you were there okay. before after Katrina. Now I got this awesome tome about like adventure and super domes and you're I, being in the middle of a Category Five hurricane, one of the greatest natural disasters, greatest. Well, one of I don't the worst think it ended disasters. up being that. I mean, it, it was still was a hurricane that happened, but I think if it had been the Hurricane Five. Yeah hitting the eye of the storm at New Orleans, nobody would have yeah. gotten out of love. Well, I'm glad you made it. That's <laughs> 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 like an understatement of our whole interview here. Yeah. But anyway, well, talk to me. Let's let's digress a little bit. Well, f- okay. First, I want to say that like tragedy but brings up... But New Orleans is awesome. So oh, I will yeah. say, and the, the accessibility and openness of the community and humanity and players and people like all over and just, yeah. I mean... I feel so lucky to have been there in the the time that I was there and Yeah. I mean, it really was like a dream. Because it's anyone who knows anything about New Orleans knows that music is more directly woven into the culture there in a way that yeah. I feel like a lot of America missed out on that. Uh I grew up in the north but I had relatives mm-hmm. in the south and you know, the north for being, you know, more technologically advanced, um when I would go to the south, that's where I heard more live traditional i mean not in a bar or in a in a show i just mean like just sitting around in lawn chairs like i I don't think anyone else in the world unless maybe some tribal situation really values music more than new orleans does Yeah. So, and you went there because of music. And did mm-hmm. you make a living as a musician in, in New Orleans? I did. There were periods where I would do other work as well. I did historical restoration, house painting, bartending, yeah. personal assistant, laying tile, blah, blah. I mean, I've pretty much done just, I was a nursery school teacher. I've done probably most jobs, again, with my own two hands kind of thing. Um, but always doing music and there were definitely periods of time where all I did was music because yeah. gigs paid. I mean, I had a, f- a five-piece band. I was always playing. I could pay people. I was getting paid. There was a guarantee. There wow. were there were gigs. Um I mean, it like I made a living from performing, not even just like session work. Right. Like just places paid. I don't know if it's still like that now, but I mean, even in New York, they pay something. You right. know, or they at least, you know, yeah. feed you I mean LA's funny that way I don't want to get down about it because I love yeah. Los Angeles and I live here and I continue to live here and there is a great music scene here but the ugly truth is that in terms of live music nobody's getting paid really uh, well I mean, there's at a different certain ways level, sometimes yeah. at a certain it, level it all kind of depends but there's it's not like a guarantee yeah. and it's right. not like um, uh, there's not all this expectation of the artist to provide everything in order to be paid or something like that. There's kind of like a more um, togetherness in responsibility or whatever, or and just more focus on, uh, sorry, um, I don't know. L.A., there's for sure a community and lots of stuff happening. You can get paid, but it's not like there's a guarantee was the point. Right. Because, I mean, I've never been lived in a place or been to a place where there are more free shows. <laughs> Everybody plays for free, and then therefore, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. a chance to play, lots of places to play. Well, New Orleans, I mean, the places, 
are still free to attend, mm -hmm. but the players still get paid, or at least that's how it was. Imagine that. Yeah. Out here, it'll cost you a lot of the time. That's why I started doing apartment concerts. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, let's talk about that just a little bit, like the how, how, like house shows. That's something mm -hmm. that's becoming uh, like an emerging thing. I mean, I have friends who are folk musicians. You know, a large percentage of their gigs are done in people's homes. You pay some money to get in, and then there's some food and drink, and it's a more intimate environment. You get to talk to the artist. Um, it's just, so you do them in your own home? Yeah, I have a little apartment in Hollywood, and I make a bunch of food. I usually have it vegan, so there's not a question of anybody. You know, it's healthy vegan food because I believe in it. Everyone can eat it. And um, I sell only a certain number of tickets. There's like room for 16 to 20 people. I charge a fee. I perform. Um, and then I have a guest that performs. So people arrive at six. They can get some food, eat, hang out, talk. I do a set. There's a small break. Another performer performs. People can have more food if they want. It's bring your own drinks. And then, um, winding down, talking, and everybody's gone by 10. And, you know, as a musician, for me, I don't have to schlep gear or pay for parking right. or rush on or off a stage because there's five other acts coming on. Right. Um, I can then pay the you, people because I believe in paying people. you make yourself sell 150 tickets before you right. can book the show <laughs> like they do over in other places in Hollywood? Right. No, but I, you know, I can take care of people, you right. know, pay whoever's in, involved so they make something, you know, and, um, and it basically, yeah, I kind of just thought I want to perform and I, and I don't want it to cost me. And so this is the way I kind of figured yeah. it out. And there's a certain empowerment in it too, because, and it's a whole special different feeling too. I definitely like playing in the public. But there's something really nice and intimate about just having a private thing. Yeah. And what do you um, charge? A ballpark. Twenty bucks. That yeah. includes dinner and the music. And yeah. um, you know, and then I usually say people can pay whatever they want if they have a CD, you know, if they want a CD. Yeah. But um Yeah, so so far it sells out every time. I've you know, only done a handful, but yeah. um I plan to have another one coming That's up. That's pretty soon. cool. I like that kind of stuff. Thanks. And I, we've got one more song to get to before we've got to roll out of here. But I promised everyone, like, you've played on a Leonard Cohen album. Like, that's a name that, that invokes a lot of passion out of people in the music. There's a handful of people's names, like, that have this rabid following. Tom Waits is another one. Mm -hmm. uh, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, etc. Um, now, was this... But you've played with other folks, too. There's a quote from Bo Diddley in your, your press material. Like, where did you yeah. play with Bo? Because I met Bo. I sold Bo some stuff Oh, once. yeah, that was great. I was playing in a blues band, and we were scheduled to open up for him at the House of Blues in New Orleans. And he must have come into town before his band because he was there, but his band was stuck in a snowstorm okay. in New York. So we were the opening band. How fortuitous for yes, you. Yes, yes. So we were the opening band, but then we got to be his band and, I mean, that was cool. I mean, he would just, like, look at me and signal me to solo wow. all night long, you know, with that... Square guitar. Square guitar, yeah. I mean, it was so, so great. That was really, like, definitely a highlight in my life. Can I tell a couple of real quick bow stories? Sure. I uh, I showed up in, in a show choir in high school. We came to 
California to Los Angeles to do a handful of shows and do a little tour. And we, they drop us off. You know, we'd done a couple shows at Disneyland. I don't know. I haven't been to Disneyland actually since then, which has been the 80s, right? There's a stage in like this outdoor cafeteria that's covered. And so we had performed on there. And I was like, oh, okay, we're at Disneyland. La-di-da, there's fun. There's some people from Cleveland having their, you know, with their kids. Later on, so we're, we pack up our stuff and they just turn us loose in the park for the rest of the day. There's a sign that they put up after we left the stage that said, Bo Diddley is playing on this stage at like 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 6 o'clock or something like that. And I knew, at, even at that point at age like 16 or whatever, that's Bo Diddley. He's <laughs> wow. a founder of rock and roll. He's playing at the cafeteria in Disneyland. <laughs> it, was a, it was an education in a number of ways. The musicians take gigs. They take paying gigs. And he, if they're paying to pay Bo Diddley to play at Disneyland, he's going to play at Disneyland in the cafeteria. But he came out with his band, and like here's because he's a kind of a vulgar man in a lot of ways. His speech, kind of coarse speech. He's a legendary rock and roller, and he gets up there and he's got his square guitar and his jumpsuit and his belt buckles the size of a dinner plate, and he's got his hat and he's rocking the room, and it was the coolest thing at Disneyland. So we went at two and went off and did a ride, came back at four, went off and did something, <laughs> came back. We saw all the shows he oh, played that day. Great. Such an incredible thing. And then years later, when I was working in, at Manny's Music in New York City in the recording department. I'm standing there one day, and in rolls Bo Diddley. That was the thing about Manny's. People would roll in from all, Terry Connick Jr., uh, the Osmonds, uh, Ziggy Marley, Stevie Wonder, all these people would roll in and out of there all the time, which was kind of cool. And in walks Bo Diddley. And I, I'm going to bleep out the swear words, uh, or I'm going <laughs> to use different words. Maybe I'll bleep them out. That'll be kind of fun. I'll just tell the story, and I'll bleep them out. In walks Bo Diddley. He walks right up to me, and he goes, I'm Diddley. <laughs> and I go, okay, obviously it's Bo Diddley. We all know who Bo Diddley is. And same thing. Get up with the jumpsuit and the giant dinner plate size belt buckle on the hat. And he goes, I need some shit. I'm messing with a new sound. It's a mother <laughs> And I go, okay. Awesome. Mr. Mr. Diddley, nice to meet you. Welcome to Maddie's Music. Uh, can, you, can you describe the nature of the sound that you need the for and he's you know and at this point he was a little vague about it you know but i knew that he was an innovator like his guitar he had all kinds of switches yeah. and crazy stuff on it i knew that he had always kind of pushed forward in terms of sonics uh his exploring the sonic space so i mean i had sold him a, a rack mounted compressor and some other stuff that did some stuff and he was seemed very happy and off he went and what a great story i got to meet bo diddley and I, he's a client of mine it was such a cool thing and then you know so i it's it's cool to see that someone else had an experience playing with a guy like that and then, like, so Leonard Cohen, was this a, a, like a side person gig? You just get a call one day, hey, come over and play a Leonard Cohen thing. Was he even there? Like, Oh, yeah. No, I have a very dear uh, special connection with Leonard. Um, when I was young, I went to a summer camp with his children and um, have remained friends with, with them, but was always closest with his daughter. And at his house, he lives upstairs and she lives downstairs and like it's two separate places um and so like i said la was so hard when i was here and i you know the whole car scene <laughs> everything else so anyway i i was really just stuck so um my friend invited me to live there with her and so but i've known him and them throughout 
all the years because even when I was like in New Jersey, she would come visit me from France and then I went to Bard, she visited me there and then I lived in New Orleans, I she visited me there. I think she even came out to New Mexico. I came out to LA. So throughout our lives, because I think she was nine, I was 11 or mm-hmm. something. We were kids Similar when, when we knew each other, you know, when we met. And um, so he's always felt like family and um, because I'd met him before and visited anyway. So I was living there and it was, they really made me feel at home and treated me like family. We had Shabbat every Friday and uh, he has a recording studio in the back house, and Leanne Unger was recording his album called Dear Heather, and the title track, Dear Heather, he had me play muted trumpet on. And so um, that's how that went down. So what you're telling me is that you've both survived Katrina <laughs> and lived in a house with Leonard Cohen at one point in your life. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You're my idol. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I kid, I kid. I'm, I'm just trying. It's just, it's, a, it's a crazy, like, what a crazy coincidence to have in one life. Like, I love the lives of musicians. That's why I do this show. Like, all the crazy experiences. Because if you get off the beaten path in life, and most musicians have to get out of that right away, they're, they're going to do anything. Like you said, you've done all these odd jobs. People have asked me, what do you do for a living in the past? And I'll say, I'll, I'm a musician, so I'll do anything that you'll pay me to do. I think what it is is that everything is connected and everything has a vibration and so if you are being yourself and focused on all that things just kind of happen or come together you know or they don't or they will or they have you know however it is and it um it is pretty magical life if you kind of look at it um if if you're living in the moment, if you really can see it while it's happening, if you can stay in the the creative thing space, then, yeah. Then, uh, but if you're you know sad about the past or scared about the future or you know or judging haves or have-nots or whatever, then you're off track a little yeah. bit. And but if you're like living in that space, or you can keep kind of bringing yourself back to that space it just kind of ends up i mean i could go on and on with stories and connections and things and people and it it would all maybe be shocking or seemingly like wow but it's just kind of like life you know well people forget uh here we go with more greeting card philosophy but people forget that right now is the moment where the past and the future intersect but you're only ever at that moment. You know, it's easy to live in the past. It's all we've ever known. It's what made us what we are. It's our experiences that make us who we are. So that's easy to do that and rest on that. So well, I am this way because I was always this way, that way, or whatever. And in the future, I am going to do this, that, or the other. But that's still there. That, that nexus point moves forward through time, and that's where we all always will be. And it's like catching those vibrations and making it all happen at that time. Mm-hmm. And that you're saying, like you said, that's life. That's exactly it. It's a good stuff. Look at we've solved the meaning of life. That wasn't that hard, was it? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so Sarah, it's uh, we've got one more song here. Uh, it's been such an honor to have you on the show. An honor to get to know you. Uh, I'm so excited to bring people your music too because it's really, really great. I'm looking forward to the new record. Uh, I really, really loved Home. I think people should pick that record up. Uh, you can find it on iTunes. SarahKramer.com is another place you can find it. You can also because you're constantly playing shows. 
you're playing with your, you're doing your own thing. You're playing gigs with other people. You're doing sessions, making a I, life at this. I play with Jack. Yep, play with Jack. Uh, and tell us who else is in that. Um, Pete Thomas on drums. People know him from uh, Elvis Costello. Yeah, Davey Farragher on bass. Who was in Cracker and also played with Elvis and mm -hmm. a huge experience. And Val McKellum on guitar. Very nice. Then there are horns that vary. Um, Neil Larson and Dara Leonard. Um, but in the past, Val's brother Paul and Mitchell Froome. Mm, yeah. um, Love the Mitchell. The, the rotating horns. But... We shall call them piece of shit on drums, shorty shit on bass, and bow shit on guitar. And that just blew the whole don't curse on the radio. Well, it's idea. like, it's Jack. <laughs> what are you going to do? You guys are like the Ramones. You can accept it. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's how it works. Anyway, so what's this song going to be? This song is called Way Back Home, and it refers to um, my memory of my childhood home in New, in New Jersey. <laughs> In Jersey. In Jersey. All right. Sarah Kramer on Independence Day. Way back home. I dreamed I saw light in the road shining bright, showing me the way back home. Home. When the lilacs blooming home, when the raspberries growing home, when the fireflies are in flight. Home in the summertime with the fan in the window on, crickets making their sounds in the night. Slowly the garden stops calling and the leaves from the trees start falling and the air is crisp and cool on skin. It's time to carve faces and put candles in their places, looking out through the glass of the blowing wind. Soon the snow will cover like blankets of silence that hover and icicles will be hanging from the roof as the smoke rises up the chimney and the music from the records comes to me I'm home, I don't need any proof I'm not ready to pack away my sweater but surely the springtime's better cause Everything is growing and it's new I dreamed I saw light in the road shining bright Showing me the way back home The way back home
My name is Joe Armstrong. One last time, Sarah Kramer, accompanied by Danny Magoo and Stephen Hodges. Such great stuff, Sarah. Thank you so much. I, I, it's been such a great time talking to you. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. And for all you do for artists, it's Aww. really awesome that you support so many people because there's not enough... Um, you know, you do all this and you want to get it out there and it's just really hard to even find a way or a place to get it out there. So it's really special that you do this. Well, thank you. It's, thank it's, you. it's my honor, honestly. And I, I, I try to approach this from the perspective of a musician. So it's not just the same dopey questions about what it's like being a musician. I mean, some of that's all mixed mm-hmm. in there. That stuff's always there. But I, I really love, I just love talking about music and I love talking to people about music. And, and thank you again. It's been so great. And keep doing what you do, you know, thank like you. you're the real deal, you know, and it'd be, I don't think musicians hear that enough. You know, it's like, I feel like it's a thankless thing. We go about our lives, we do our things, and sure, there's some applause, but the applause ends. And then, I mean, that's like an hour a day or an hour a week or whatever it is. If you're on tour, maybe a little bit more, but then it's the rest of you doing the things that everybody does at that point. Nobody's applauding you when you're laying tile to support your music career, you know? You just hope it reaches somebody's ears. Yeah, exactly. I just hope I have an effect on somebody. The same thing with this show. I just want people to feel something, Sarah. That's what I do. That's why I do this. <laughs> So thank you once again. Thank you to Sarah Kramer and her band, Danny Magoo and Stephen Hodges. Also to the Independence Day staff, Valentina Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The optimistic Tony Tone Loke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. I do wish you'd check them out. For Independence Day, as always, I am Joe Armstrong. If you do one thing today, please be good to one another.